Mormon Matters podcast features panel discussions of topics related to The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Whether about Mormon teachings, scriptures, contemporary events, or Mormon culture, it seeks to explore all themes with fairness and respect, searching for robust presentations of issues and compassion for all people and questions. The podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation and is seeking to build financial support that will help it continue to produce important and helpful content. All donations to Mormon Matters are fully tax deductible. To support the podcast, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonmatters.org. Thank you for your support. everyone to another edition of the Mormon Matters Podcast. This is your host, Dan Weatherspoon. It's been a few weeks since we've had a podcast. Just some interesting scheduling issues that come up with people, and I'm actually going to be recording three episodes in the next five days, including this morning, and I'm thrilled to do this one. This has been one that's been in my mind and kind of, you know, brewing uh, for a little while. As many people will know, Carolyn Pearson published a wonderful book called The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, Haunting the Hearts and Heavens of Mormon women and men and that came out in late June early July and we had her on and we kind of talked about that subject broadly and I'm excited to have that uh, some of the the key aspects of that come up again today but following her release of that Stephen Carter wrote an essay in sort of a special polygamy issue of Sunstone that came out also in July and Stephen um, used Carolyn's book and he certainly it was I would just call it a review essay is what he basically did and he he certainly talked about her book and and said many many good things about it but then he said I feel like this book has served me up a couple of balls to hit (laughs) you know and I I want to riff a little bit on Mormon marriages and he said some very provocative things so I thought well that'll be great to have Carolyn and Stephen back together and just uh, circumstances and life and other things kind of got other topics came up and we finally got the gang together to have this conversation along with an old favorite of our Mormon Matters listeners, Jennifer Finlayson Fife, who's a therapist working out of Chicago. So let me quickly welcome all three of you again. Let's just do quick, like, like 30 second bios. So Carolyn, when did your book get in? How can people get it, etc.? And, you know, anything that you'd like to say first? Sure. Thank you, Dan. Um, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy was published about two months ago, and it's readily available on Amazon. So I know everybody here and everybody listening must have Amazon Prime. So just just, uh, go in and get it. And they Um, all know to go through the Mormon Matters portal. See, that's an extra thing that they should know. (laughs) That way it gets a little kickback to Mormon Matters. So thank you on that. But okay, so the book's available. And what are you been doing since it came out? Catching up with my life because really I dropped almost everything for a couple of years because I felt it was so pressing to to do this book. So I've, I've just been catching up with a lot of things and trying to find ways to, to, to promote the book and get it out there. I received a lot of really grateful responses 
for which I, I truly am very pleased to, to have that. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. And, and uh, just as you go, your autobiography and other things will come up. And for anybody who this is their first time listening to you, they're going to be so intrigued that they'll go dive into five hours with John DeLynn when he interviewed you and all the other times you've That's been on America. various things. Yeah. Anyway, well, thank you, friend. It's great to have you back on. Thank you, Dan. Love to be with you. Now, Stephen, I'm not sure I did a really good job at sort of framing uh, what your essay kind of said. And just the topic for today is Mormon marriages and especially the things that are in Mormon marriages that in some ways can work against, you know, husbands and wives developing true intimate relationships, you know, that that things. And, and so uh, you'll, you'll end up sharing with us kind of the two angles that you took on that. But um, tell us a little bit more about the publication of that piece and anything else that uh, relates in this area. Oh, I don't know how interesting the publication of the piece is. Well, just where, where, where <laughs> they can get it, what issue number or date. Oh, or sure. Like yeah, sure. yeah. It, it came out in, in our summer 2016 issue which uh, was focusing on on polygamy, as you said. It's actually quite a fascinating uh, issue. I tried to go in some very different directions than than the normal directions that we go in. And it was interesting because, you know, I had polygamists in there. I had people who didn't like polygamy in there. I had people who were arguing uh, for its legalization, against its legalization, It'll give you a kind of a broad context to think about current and uh, and uh, past polygamy in in Mormon in Mormon dumb. Yes, and then I hear you have a fascinating piece, the one that you you tried out at Sunstone, and everyone's like scratching their head at first and going, "What direction is he going with this?" And then uh, <laughs> they all caught on and says, "Wow, this was an interesting, fresh angle." I hear that's coming out in dialogue soon. It's true. It's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> yeah, we won't go <laughs> into it, here, but we're wetting the appetite that Stephen is a good thinker about marriage <laughs> and about polygamy. But I, I think today we'll concentrate a little bit more on on the two softballs that he felt like Carol Ann's book served up uh, for him to hit out of the park. So uh, thanks for being on, brother. Sure. Jennifer, welcome back. You were like a regular <laughs> guest early on, and I don't know how we, we haven't had you on. It's so good I to have know. you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell us, uh, I know you're back in the Chicago area, tell us a little more about what you do for a living and uh, anything that you want to kind of put in front of us at the moment. Sure. Well, first, I'm really excited to be on this particular podcast because these are topics that are near and dear to my heart and very related to both how I, both what I do now and how I got into this uh, niche of practice. So I basically work mostly with LDS women and LDS couples around marital and sexuality issues. And um, so I see people over Skype and I also see people in my uh, office, obviously here in Chicago. And then I um, also teach online courses for LDS couples and LDS women on issues related to intimacy in marriage. And and I don't mean that as a pseudonym for sexuality. <laughs> I mean that literally intimacy in the way that Stephen talks about it in his essay, but also uh, sexuality. Um, and sexual self-development. So, so yeah, so those are my, the focus of my work. Well, and you've been on lots of podcasts across the various, uh, you know, podcasts that serve this kind of community. So, uh, and you're, uh, aren't you a regular on uh, rational face podcast? Yes. Uh huh. Is it ask a Mormon sex therapist or what's the title? Uh Yeah. It's ask a Mormon sex therapist series. 
Yes. Great. Exactly. So, Thank, yeah. Thanks. Well, it's great to have you back on. So what we're going to do, um, listeners, is just ask Carolyn Pearson to, to share, you know, uh, for a few minutes the the piece of her book, or at least the, the you know, the ramifications of polygamy for that piece, the, that section of her book that really talks about how, the haunting, the haunting of hearts and heavens of, con- of Mormon men and women, and how sometimes it can affect marriage relationships and things like that. We'll just use that as our first little um, thing to sort of throw up, uh, because I think there's some there's some there's some issues besides the ones that Stephen even uh, talks about when we get to his piece. But there's some other things um, sort of emerge out of this too that all of us can talk about. So, Carolyn, will you just kind of do five minutes or whatever on what you found as this pain around my current marriage because of the polygamy teachings. Sure. Thank you, Dan. Uh, for those who don't know anything about this book, let me just mention that <clears throat> I, I sponsored um, a survey that attracted the first day over 2,400 people. And after, when we closed it four weeks later, uh, over 8,000 people had taken the survey asking about their feelings of the ongoing concept that we Mormons have of eternal polygamy and the inequality of the sealing practices. And so from all the stories that I collected, I, I saw themes develop. And one of the themes was how, how strongly our, our, not only our history of polygamy, but particularly our anticipation of polygamy in the next world and and how the sealing practices today seem to open up um, the 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 surety of polygamy for for many people how that whole thing just really damaged marriages Uh, we know that when brother joseph began to underline how important marriage was in the spiritual world Polygamy was really braided very, very strongly with that. And then when Brother Brigham got a hold of the concept and expanded it even further, probably, than Joseph had anything in mind, uh, polygamy became pretty much synonymous with the ideal form of, of Mormon marriage. And it was, the word intimacy probably didn't mean hardly anything to them, because from the get-go, marriage seemed to be a very utilitarian kind of thing. It was now, that, now, that's not only within Mormon marriages, it's marriages at the time as well, right? I'm sure and the, at the time as well, but that was exacerbated, I believe, right, right. In, in Mormon point of view, because Mormons were creating this kingdom for eternity. And ordinary people didn't really have that in mind. But Mormons did from the get-go. Men were creating their eternal kingdom with themselves at the center and their wives around them. And, of course, numbers seemed to play a significant part there because uh, they, they were setting up to create their own worlds in the afterlife. And you can't do that as well with one woman as you can with two or three or four or more. And so that was basic to the concept of marriage as it uh, as it evolved there. But then how it affects 
women today particularly, and men are affected certainly in some significantly damaging ways by, by often anticipating polygamy. I think we can talk about that uh, perhaps a little bit later. But the idea that the, the one that I'm married to now doesn't have to be the only one that I, that I get to, to, to be with. So sometimes they don't give their full heart to, to the current wife. But it this particularly just ripped my heart out to, to read the stories of women. And time after time, they used almost the same words saying, well, I'm going to read here a couple of paragraphs and then we'll move on to but however, wherever this takes us. Okay. Here's one woman who says, and, and this echoes the thoughts of so many. After we were married, polygamy moved in with us. Every time I would show affection to my husband, I immediately flashed on what the celestial kingdom was going to be like. And I saw that this man who I loved more than anything was basically going to be taken away from me. And all these tender moments we had together would be shared with other women. I would cry inside, already feeling like part of me was living in a polygamous relationship. I withheld love. I wasn't as kind as I wanted to be. I wasn't purposefully mean, but I was protecting myself. All this created a wedge between us. Polygamy was in our future, and I hated it. Luckily, all that changed one day when I began to read church history. The deeper I got into it, the more I knew it was all a big mistake. The Spirit confirmed it. And it felt so good. I could practically hear the Lord saying, no, polygamy is wrong. My marriage changed dramatically. I knew polygamy would never rear its head. My husband says I'm much kinder to him now. And we're both so grateful for the closeness we now feel. So that is really a good example of how the, the ongoing haunting of polygamy damages actual marriages today. And the contrast between how that marriage was functioning and then when the woman was able to just give it up totally, her heart changed and she could be so much more positively intimate with her husband. So that is that's something that I am so committed to. To, to try to alleviate the pain that, that exists in marriages that simply should not be there. Awesome. And that you hit right in the crux for sure of, of the topic that we want to have, we want the conversation we want to have. Um, before you go on with anything else you might have, Stephen or Jennifer, any, um, you know, angles on that basic nugget that she's that she's there that the uncertainty over it the anticipation of it um has you know affected marriages that you're aware of or or it has uh, most definitely affected marriages that i work with within the some of the, the most devout women that i work with for sure that it's come up in therapy the anxiety both of anticipating that they're the fear that is in Carolyn's book that many people talked about that their spouse may die. I'm sorry, that they may precede their spouse in death. And then he might take another wife and have to share this person. That's most definitely come up in, in therapy work that I've done. And then also another theme, just to echo what Carolyn's talking about in her book is women feeling like that their husbands are already anticipating this polygamous marriage and you know one couple 
she talked about how he was talking about the future wives he would like to have, the kind of people. And she was horrified that he was thinking that way. Um, and when she expressed her horror at that, that he was, you know, calling her to repentance. Wow. And, you know, that that was faithless of her, that this was the divine way, that she needed to humble herself and understand this was God's way. And, um, you know, she could feel it in the marriage, the way in which she was treated in his mind as a second class citizen. Um, and then also, you know, when he was kind of transgressive in his own behavior, looking at pornography, uh, having emotional connections with other women that was sort of in line with his worldview, really, uh, that he would go and take that up with the bishop and ecclesiastical leaders, not with his wife. And so it was a very stark example for me of how it was in his mind, his deference was to the men and that women are accessories to this male experience, this kind of the, the superiority, the supremacy of men and that women are accessories in that experience. And, you know, the, how hard and painful this was for her to really experience this in the day to day of their marriage and how justified it was for him around his own theology. Wow. Now that's yeah. probably pretty extreme, right? It is extreme in the sense that a lot of good Mormon men would never take that position, right? The problem, of course, is that he, in this case, um, and you know, as women that Carolyn's talking about, have a theology that supports this supremacy of men and women's inherent inferiority. And many good people don't take it seriously or they, they disregard it or try to. But its presence is there and it's certainly there to be exploited if someone wants to. Yes. Stephen, you're about to jump in. Actually, one of the things that was really interesting to me about, about uh, the uh, stories that Carolyn was telling in this book was, uh, <laughs> was, was, from a male point of view, how trapped it seemed that all these males were in mm. their privilege. I, I saw them as being in a kind of cage, and it was a cage that I recognized, to tell you the truth. Because mm. for a long time, I also was a very, <laughs> you know, pretty orthodox guy. I had all of those same ideas in my head. I, I had a, a very androcentric view of, of the world. I, I, I thought all of those things. And 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 I could see them being trapped all of their lives in this place where where you have power, your theology gives you your power, your culture gives you power, and it's a trap. <laughs> I feel like that googly eye guy on Star Wars. It's a trap, but uh, it traps you from being able to actually experience intimacy with another person which is uh, the most rewarding thing that I've ever experienced. Right. And to me, yeah. uh, this, this idea of, of eternal po po polygamy is a gigantic uh, stone wall between uh, most Mormons and being able to experience polygamy. I mean, not polygamy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Freud would have loved that. And intimacy. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And, and what you both are saying here is the key issue also in a fantastic essay by Eugene England called 
on marriage, fidelity, and the celest- and celestial marriage, or wait, on fidelity, oh, polygamy, yeah. and celestial marriage. Yeah. So, and that's his whole point there. He he talks about just this this that ability not only to sort of like you say anticipate and what qualities do I want in women that I will also add to my kingdom. You get that sort of thing, but just that it gives you that idea that you don't have to lean in to to the problems that you're having. You know, what is it? The He has that famous Michael yeah. Novak quote that he does, to stare into the eyes of somebody who's going to really be a mirror for you. There's a, there's a horror yeah. there that we want to retreat from sometimes. And just if you sort of have that escape clause in your head that, oh, I'll find a, you know, when things get rough with her in the, in the eternities as we move forward, I'll be able to turn to one of my other wives for comfort and who won't make me confront that part of myself right now. Right. Yeah. Uh, Dan, could I just for a moment appreciate what Stephen had to say there? I think all of us, certainly women sometimes feel, okay, the the idea here seems to be that, that patriarchy is great for men, but not so great for women. Polygamy is great for men, but terrible for women. And that's not true at all. Patriarchy mm-hmm. in general and polygamy in particular are bad for both women and men. Awesome. And the yeah. idea that that men have it really good to be able to, oh, there, there's some kind of ego stroking there, but it's not the trueness of the spirit right. that, that is being uh, given any kind of privilege. It, it takes away from this amazing opportunity of one-on-one intimate growing and appreciating and loving and and polygamy just takes away from that and i so i think what stephen said is very important amen sister <laughs> yes would go stephen <laughs> yeah me you saw through you saw through the patriarchal trap for a minute there buddy <laughs> <Just decent>. yeah <laughs> no, Stephen's so great Stephen's so great I'll tell you and just for those who listen to him off and on through the podcast and, and we did one specifically on this with uh, Stephen and Adam Miller but Stephen's so good at seeing you know what story is living us rather than you know we're living in a story but so often the story is the one that's actually driving our lives yeah. and uh, so the 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 awareness that he caught there uh, feels of the same piece of, of that. Um, did you want to jump in any more, Stephen? I want to go back to Carolyn if there were any other angles that she wanted to emphasize off the bat. I'm good. Okay. Carolyn, was there more that you wanted to share besides that one piece or uh, another angle that you wanted to make well, sure we raised early on? That uh, That's, I think, a, a very major one. We could uh, also take a look at the idea that, that polygamy sponsored a lot of of emotional inauthenticity and especially for women who were frankly told that this was God's will for them and if they did not rise to it um, that it was their fault and they were not sufficiently godly and a lot of women Mormon women in history in polygamy developed this inauthenticity inauthentic a way to um, to live in that publicly and I have in my book a great quote from Leonard Arrington's diary that 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 women would um, publicly support polygamy and then privately just hate it 
He says, wives would tear pages out of husband's diaries. They would destroy letters. Uh, there would be all of these things going on. That, and, and these feelings would be passed down from generation to generation. So it's, I find it intriguing to just wonder. And just as bodies have cellular memories, I wonder if institutions have cellular memories of some kind. And that in, in the air of Mormondom that we breathe, I wonder if there's something to this very odd uh, concept of, <clears throat> of, of emotional being two-faced, of, of saying, of holding up a public face and a private face, maybe even within the marriage itself, Absolutely. maybe to, to the other partner showing a, a face that seems to go along with whatever it is that's that's happening but but feeling inside i really don't believe that way and i think it it can cause some some real psychic and emotional challenges i i think that's absolutely true and still lives in our culture today because i think that whenever you create a marriage that's based on roles as stephen talks about in his essay too that you not on intimacy it's on when you're trying to live up to the cultural expectations of what it is to be a successful man or a successful woman. It and you're and you're looking for the validation of that role through your marriage or through your institutional experience. You it pressures you to be fake. It pressures a kind of superficiality um, and outward compliance that may be completely incongruent with what's inside of you. And it can look like goodness. We will even call it goodness, but it's antithetical to goodness, in my opinion. It's not real development. Yeah, and I would guess, Jennifer, you would also say all these things are present in pretty much every marriage, but would you just say that certain aspects of Mormonism amplify it? It's, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, just a, it's sort of similar to my earlier idea, which is, yes, that kind of development into deeper authenticity and intimacy is a process that every human being um, partakes in. But when you have a cultural script that actually gives you a different view of what the ideal marriage is, it interferes with spiritual development. Okay. It interferes Good. with the development of intimacy. And so, and I kind of link intimacy and spiritual development together and I'll just sort of throw it out there. We can talk about it more later. But one of the things that Stephen talks about in his essay that I take minor issue with is he's saying, I understand what he's saying, actually, but he's saying that, you know, in an in a intimate marriage, nothing productive happens where if we're really interested in building up the kingdom and you, then you want to put people into roles and serve the church. And if the marriage suffers, so be it. I fully agree with that idea. But what I would actually say is if you really want to cultivate the personal, psychological, and spiritual development of individuals, put them in monogamous relationships. Because that intimacy, and, and as Stephen talks about in his essay, I could even quote part of it if you want right now, that I think was really beautiful, which is he's actually saying we were actually building new selves in the process of this um, bumping ourselves up against the other person. Right. And really shaping both one another but also i think as he says at the end of the quote the self each of us was creating was deeply influenced by the evolving self of the other that's 
that is the work of maturation. That is the work of spiritual maturation, in my opinion. And when you create a religious system that is validation seeking, that is, you know, validation of a role of a kind of superficial engagement, you actually interfere with the very thing you profess to be standing up for. Awesome. Yeah, very confusing. Yeah. Now, Stephen, we're starting to anticipate your essay here, and we'll move down in a second. I wanted to at least tease this right now for maybe us coming back to, um, you know, Carolyn, you ultimately say we need to move from patriarchy to partnership. Stephen, in his essay, says something along the lines of, what would that really look like? And I don't know that he felt like that was a clear enough thing. And then, Jennifer, what you just said a little bit about Mormonism um, you know, and Mormon culture working against some of these aspects. I'm just curious whether we talk about it now or later, if you do see some cultures that we could learn from in Mormonism, in other words, or is this all like spiritual work that people need to do, you know, through therapy or through just picking up the best ideas in the air or if there really are cultural setups that that you know drive you towards it so does anyone want to should we take that now or is that just a question we can let kind of be down the road i can speak to that right now if you want i can get, at least give my thoughts about okay what, why don't we do it just while we're while i, I was sure. thinking about it sure yeah um, yeah go ahead it might go away yeah exactly um I don't know. Uh, I guess what I would say is the more rigid an institution is, uh, the more in some ways it pressures you into conformity because the cost of nonconformity is so high. And if you look at sort of, uh, you know, different religious systems, you have more liberal to more uh, orthodox in terms of what is expected of behavior. Mormonism is not the, you know, fundamentalists would be the most extreme Mormonism is not as extreme, but then you have more uh, liberal institutions. And when there's, what I would say is the upside of our faith is that it is a discipline and there's a kind of seriousness for which we take our religion. And I, I, and that pressures us to kind of rise up um, in a way that a more laissez-faire religion doesn't, as Joseph Smith talked about, was that when you expect a lot of your members, it pressures development. That said, the downside is that it becomes a rigidity where the letter of the law, where the externality, what Christ was most critical of, then also becomes your God. And so your development is stopped. So it's my long way of saying I don't know that there's a group that does it better than another group. I think there are upsides and downsides to different ways of engaging in the world. But ultimately, I think what Christ's message was around this issue of learning how to really love and tolerating the loss of self, paradoxically, even though I think I can say more about that in a minute, but the loss of ego is what I want to say that is required in that process is a very human endeavor and a challenging one for all of us. Um, we just don't want to use our ideas to stop that process. That's what Christ was the most critical of. Great. Super good. And I'm, I'm pleased 
with that as a as as far as we need to go into sure. that. But let's make sure that we do pick up the partnership and what that would look like, and let's pick that up at the end if that's good. Yeah, I'm sure. sure. We catch that. So, Stephen, um, if all if every everybody else is ready, let's. Would you take on and just sort of share a little bit more about things that were hinted out about what you meant by productivity and things, and then uh, and then your other piece, your other part of it too. Okay, I have this, 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 okay, so I've, I've heard it said that Mormons worship heterosexual marriage, and, uh, and, and I have to admit that I don't agree with that in the slightest. Um, one of the, the main uh, sort of examples that I use is to ask people to think of their favorite um, novel about Mormon marriage, and I let them think and they never come up with anything. Actually, the first thing they come up with is usually Charlie or something else by Jack Wayland. And I say, well, you realize, of course, that that's about um, uh, people who fall in love, and the novel ends at marriage, right? And they go, oh, yeah, you're right. And then as we go through, we realize that pretty much every story that we would connect with marriage ends at marriage. And it's really hard to actually find something that continues when marriage is actually hap- happening. And as I was going through, uh, <laughs> let's see, where, where did I put this? So uh, W. Somerset Mom, one of the early 20th century's greatest novelists, once said something that just made me go into despair. It's on the first page of The Razor's Edge. And he says, when male and female, after whatever vicissitudes you like, are at last brought together, they have fulfilled their biological function, and interest passes to the generation that is to come. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, there's that famous quote from, like, I, I don't remember who it was, Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, which speaks volumes about my, my, my ignorance, who says that all happy marriages are alike. It's the sad ones that are individual. <laughs> so the, so the, the, the first thing that we have to look at is that when it comes to marriage, we have an absolute paucity of, of, of narrative. Our uh, stories all end at marriage. Or if you go to Google and you type in movies about marriage, you will see that three quarters of the movies that, 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 that come up are about the disintegration of a marriage. Right. So somehow we've created this context where it's really interesting getting up to marriage and it's really interesting getting out of the marriage. That's where the the drama takes place. That's where it's interesting. And we have nothing, almost nothing, to, to help us actually imagine what a marriage would be like. And I think that this is the first big strike against Mormons having really interesting marriages. Having marriages... On Golden Pond is a good one. On Golden Pond, good, good point, and 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 I'd actually really appreciate it if you guys like think of movies or or books to bring them up because I'd like to explore these more. Cool, and then listeners, uh, comment section too. Yeah, love it, love it, and remember, it has to be about the marriage. <laughs> right. So, so here's what's interesting narratively. Um, when 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 you go into a story it's a, it's about at the one third mark where things really get interesting where you have that first turn 
that sends people on the really important work of the story. This is when Luke Skywalker leaves his home because, you know, it's been destroyed and he goes and becomes a a Jedi. It it happens at the one-third point of episode four. And so, interestingly, Mormons tend to marry in their early 20s, which is about one-third of the way through their lives. And so, in a sense, the marriage should be the most storied, interesting part of our lives. It should be the one that has the most change, the most drama, the most interest. But there's a huge thing that stands in our way. And uh, this is the fact that when Mormons get married, the first thing we do is split them up. We send the husband usually out to get his education and start on his career, and we usually send the wife out to bear children and raise them. And 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 if you listen to most uh, commendations of of a good marriage, most most accolades when 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 people are talking about these great marriages, what they talk about is. And he's a successful guy at this, and they've raised this beautiful family together, and they've had these callings, and they talk about all of these things, but all of them happen because of the division of labor. It's because one went and did one thing, and the other went and did the other thing. Every once in a while, they came back home, had family home evening, maybe made another baby, and then they split up again and went off and did their stuff. So, for example... When we think of who are the most revered people in our culture, in Mormon culture, the first thing we usually think of is, you know, the, the First Presidency and, and, and the Apostles. But when we think about the First Presidency and the Apostles, do we ever think about their wives? Usually not. They get about one one-thousandth of the airtime that our Apostles usually get. And then, do we ever think about their marriages? Do we ever hear stories about their marriages? When we look up on the walls of, 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 of the primary room, do we ever see pictures of the couples, of the, of, of, of the apostle and his wife? Do we ever look up on the stand at church and see the bishop and his wife and this counselors and their wives? The only thing we ever see are, you know, the males up in front of us. We never see... Uh, males and females together doing something that is completely unique to them, making something together that is their own. The, the only way that, 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 that we really uh, uh, value their, their marriage is what they're able to do apart from each other. Of course, they support each other by her taking care of the house, him taking care of the money, things like that. They're in sort of a symbiotic relationship but in the end, we don't really care about the marriage. We only care about what it produces. The marriage is, 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 is like a machine. It produces these things, careers, children, church attendance. But it almost never seems to produce these lovely, uh, difficult, dramatic stories about what that marriage between those people was actually like. And just for the record, I'd like to say that I think that a beautiful, dramatic, interesting marriage could absolutely happen in both heterosexual and homosexual and other committed uh, relationships. I'm done.
Okay. So <laughs> the productivity, that was only the first of your two points from your piece though, right? That was only the first point. Okay. So so let's let's uh turn Jennifer and Carolyn loose on anything you've said here that you want to pump up or or just feel free to call me out. Angles. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I I agree with that really. Yeah. I, I do. And again, the word that I used, utilitarian, comes to mind. Yeah. In in the church today, we really do see the marriage as a utilitarian base for for producing children and all of the things that you mentioned. Do I remember correctly that that in in a biblical law there was something that gave uh, a couple when they married some time together off of of, of regular commitments. I, I know there's something that I remember about that. M- well, maybe not because nobody else. <laughs> I don't know. know. <laughs> yeah, I was I was just racking my brain there. Um, I, I know there was there was something that that struck me as as I know giving. They have a week some... together. I believe they have a week together. A week. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I know that I think so because I um, didn't like when Rachel and Leah, you know, Leah first and then Rachel. Like there's something about Jacob completed his week with Leah, and then he got to marry Rachel right away, but still had to do seven more years. Well, well, that's not what I'm remembering. Maybe I'm remembering, hopefully, but never mind. Let Let's move on. But I, I, I really, I do agree with with what was said there. Uh, we do not value the marriage relationship in and of itself as a place of, of firstly, of joy, and of of learning. We, we don't seem to value the idea. Well, you know, we say that we are that we might have joy. At least men are that they might have joy. Joy isn't a second wife. <laughs> oh, man. Ouch. <laughs> but that's a grand concept. And what if we really said marriage is that the couple might have joy? Wouldn't that be a great banner? That that would be the, the first thing. And knowing that joy is something that that does not not automatically comes with the the, the marriage license, uh, marriage should be an opportunity more than anything else, an opportunity for personal growth and personal joy. And yes, solving a lot of problems and dealing with a lot of things we didn't bargain for. The idea of of joy, which to my mind um, it relates to the word intimacy, that should be very highly valued, and, and I don't think we do. Wouldn't it be great if we could actually have a concept of marriage not as something that we endure to the end and produce children and whatever else comes of it, but that we actually see the the, the marriage arena itself as a place to create joy, to do personal learning and develop uh, with one another, but but also to truly experience joy. Wouldn't that be great? Be <laughs> it would, but I'm afraid that it would take way too much work for most people's taste. Ta- uh, joy? Joy takes, takes work. Haven't you found well, that? What if we just didn't use the work the word work so much <laughs> the joy requires attention there you go i like it requires time and attention you know whenever i hear somebody say oh boy you know marriage really takes work i cringe 
at the at the idea of of just you know it, it's like you have a shovel out there in the backyard just <laughs> working working working. But if we just chose a different word, I said, oh boy, we need requires. time. We need time and attention. And I would say joy requires personal development, which is hard. Right. Development into being a more solid person, a more autonomous in a relational sense person takes courage. It takes courage. And I think many of us would rather forge dependencies. And I think it's easy to do that in our relationships with one another and with the church. I think that, you know, the view that Carolyn and Stephen are both talking about with respect to marriage, I, I couldn't agree more. I don't think there's anything more joyful than being in a truly intimate marriage, being in a marriage in, where there's a deep friendship and there's room for two people. That's really how I think of a good marriage, where there's enough strength in the couple that two people can show up and can both belong to themselves and each other. I think this is what human beings, we all want. We want to belong to want somebody that really matters to us, but we also want to belong to ourselves to fulfill the measure of our creation. And what marriage often does is, especially when we value hierarchy, and we value hierarchy within marriage, even though we use the language of equals, that you find a way that the woman doesn't get to belong to herself. And then we call that goodness, that she is subsumed in the marriage, that, you know, she crawls underneath him and props him up. And that's his way of, you know, feeling like he's strong and he gets to belong to himself and to her, but she doesn't get to have both things. And in order to make room for two people, you have to develop real strength, real capacity to love and honor the uniqueness of another person, even when it doesn't validate you. And that's hard human work. I don't know. I won't use that word. <laughs> you scared us, Carolyn. <laughs> but that, it's not shovel in the backyard work. It's the work of de- developing into being what I think Christ holds up as our, as our true ideal. I, I think that in many ways, what interferes is both the, the issue of, of, patriarchy of an implicit message in the church and in other ways explicit message that men are superior when you know carolyn was asking in the early part of her book why is maleness superior to femaleness and you know i i asked that same question of myself as a young child i i could feel it in the way that we were in the church that looking on the stand it was all men that i was praying to a male god um and, you know, I just, I knew that I was valued as a female. I knew my, I valued my mother. I knew she mattered. I believe that God valued me, but I also felt really clearly that God valued men more than women, that they were somehow, as Carolyn says, the gold standard when we were the silver. <laughs> and uh, I just remember thinking as a kid that, that God must really favor our family because we were both Mormon and I had five brothers. Whoa. Right. And this was a, you know, I thought, wow, you know, I'm special because I belong to this special family. And so, you know, that it's just, you know, I didn't learn about polygamy until I was 12 years old. But when I learned about it, it was both shocking and horrifying. The idea that this was considered the higher law, which my Sunday school teacher was unequivocal about. And yet it made it 
in a sense, it was it was there, even though I didn't know it was there. I could feel it in the way that I was in this beloved community that really valued me, but that put men above women. And that terrified me about getting married. I, it took me until I was almost 30 to get married because I had to eradicate this theology from my own psyche. I had to know that I knew it wasn't true. But if I was going to believe that men were superior to women, it felt dangerous to me to get married, to really give my heart to someone because it wasn't safe unless we were on equal ground. And and so you can't create intimacy when a hierarchy is present in the psychology and in the structure of the church. And Jennifer, as we know, that the, the, the very language that is in the temple when we marry does put us on unequal ground yes. of who gives and who receives. Yes. Uh, it, it is unequal there. Yes. And, and that just lays a, a, a pattern for very, very difficult things. It's an awful pattern. And if, if you're going to take it seriously, which we want, we want to be able to take our faith seriously, and it, it sets a very destructive pattern in place. And what's been really striking to me in working with couples, I think because of my own evolution, I've let my own internal evolution, I've let so many of those things go. And I am very happily married. And when I sit with couples, I sometimes I'm still shocked at how alive that hierarchy is in these very good people who are have their own strengths. And yet that hierarchy is there, even if it's unnamed and very hard. And isn't it sad that some of the, uh, the the stories that we might bring up, it would be the most orthodox people who yeah. experience the most pain. That's right. About some of these things, and those who somehow have developed in a direction that they can just say, "I, I know this no this does not serve me. I am going to uh, to throw it away from right. my my whole theological, spiritual, emotional system here." Right. But that seems to to bring greater health. And wouldn't it be wonderful if there could be a consistency always about the things that are offered by our religion always being the things that that enrich our marriages and our personal inner feelings about ourselves instead yeah, of yeah. instead of having to to throw away a lot of those in order to be healthy. That's sad. Right, absolutely. And it's where we need to go. And I, I, I really love your optimism and your faith uh, in our ability to evolve as a people. And we need that faith. We need to do that for ourselves. We have to become more Zion-like people. And it is through eradicating these false traditions that, that hold us down. You know, I think that the second thing I'm going to say that I think interferes with this intimate marriage that's in my mind right now anyway, is the, the hierarchy piece. But also when we basically make the church matter more than our spiritual development. It's like the Sabbath was made for man, not man yeah. for the Sabbath. The church is there to support, as you're saying, Carolyn, our development into more loving, solid people, not the other way around. And it's easy to go the other way. Easy. Right. But that's such a radical thought for so many people. Yes. 
Yeah, I've been preaching that one for years and years too, and it's it doesn't uh, it doesn't always land. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I I still after it because that's a that's that's exactly how I go a lot. In fact, yeah. I'm teaching this coming Sunday, and I'm uh, uh, there is elements of the lesson that I'm thinking of playing in that area. Now, mm-hmm. hey, um, there was just a piece maybe five minutes ago, Jennifer, where. Um, uh, I'll, I'll just say this out loud. There is there's a segment of you know the listening audience here mm-hmm. who are right on that edge. Can I stay Mormon? And sometimes mm-hmm. can I stay married to somebody who's at such a different uh, mm-hmm. viewpoint within my marriage or you know or with or related to Mormonism or whatever. So with that segment in mind, Jennifer, and the, you know, it's so much harder to do this within a patriarchal culture. It's so much harder to do this within a Mormon marriage that has these aspects. I'm, I want something that would say, that doesn't mean I, I think it's great to leave the culture or leave the marriage necessarily. Oh. You know what I mean? I just, I don't want, I don't want this to have that, no. that opportunity That's of like, you've I now, ampl- yeah, right. You have, you've now amplified mm-hmm. my, my anxiety. Um, so I am, I may make a, a stark action. So how, how can. Sure. Um, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. For, so first of all, you know, I'm active in the church and I'm married to a man and I'm, you know, and, and we got married in the temple and, you know, it's the, so I do think it's around, how to say it, it's basically how important are you going to make conformity in your spiritual process. Now, I guess what I want to say is, for some people, leaving is the right thing. And so I'm not, by what I'm going to say, saying that somehow if you're strong, you stay. But I think that uh, there are, it, it really comes to whether or not you're going to forge more autonomy in your spiritual development. And... Uh, play up the part of our theology that talks about personal development, forging our own relationship to God, coming to know who God is, which has been deeply shaped and shifted for me over the last 30 years, you know, meaning that I see God very differently than the God I saw at age 12 when I learned about polygamy. Um, And that this is my community and my people that I feel a deep affection for, a deep appreciation for, and a deep desire to help in our forward movement as a collective. And so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that if you're going to say whatever the church says is what I must do, and is, then it is, then you do have to leave, okay? But if you can say, no, the church is here for me, not me for the church, and so how can I live up to what I believe is right and true, and what does that do in my relationship to my theology? And what does that do in my relationship to my spouse? Um, you know, can you make room for two people in a marriage where one is a believer in the church and one is a non-believer or doubts? And those are, I mean, they're challenging questions. I'm not here to say everybody can or should be able to do it. But that coming into some distrust that, the church is going to always lead you in the right direction or that every idea that comes, you know, I remember a, a friend at church in a Relief Society meeting came up to me after the church had released its um, position statement on blacks in the priesthood. And she's, you know, quite devout. And she, I think she sees me as more of a questioner. And so she came up to me and she said, I read that essay and she said, it was so disillusioning for me. She said, I, I just can't tolerate that idea that the church gets things wrong. 
And she said, you know, if they've gotten that wrong, what else have they gotten right. wrong? Oh. And I said, oh, lots of things. <laughs> and she said, wait, I can't live like that. You know, it's like, I can't think that way. I either need to trust it or not trust it. And I respect what she's saying, but I think that we have to do better than that if we are going to be wise, if we're going to be co-creators of goodness. We have to develop less dependency on the leadership. Can I tell a story that goes along sure. with that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so when there there was a period of five years where where uh, my where where my family lived in Alaska, and that was uh, during a time when I was going through what's now known as a faith crisis, though mm-hmm. the though the words hadn't been developed for it yet. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you know we were good Mormons up until that point, and it. And as I was going through this, as everything was kind of being turned on its head, um, I was scared to death scared. to tell my wife yeah. about it. And uh, and eventually it got to the point, it was in Alaska, it was during the winter, and it was very dark all the time, and eventually I, I, I had to say something. And, and I sat with her for days and told her probably the most horrifying things that a Mormon wife could hear. Not not I've been screwing around, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but but I don't know uh, if there's a God. I don't know about this Joseph Smith guy. I don't know about the church. I I, I don't know if there is value in anything. Every one of my values has been tossed up in the air. I don't have ground beneath my feet. I don't know how to judge anything around me. Who are my children? Who who is my wife? Who am I? And so the interesting thing is, uh, she sat and she listened to me the entire time while I was saying these 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 terrifying things. And it was the very fact that she sat and listened to me that made all the difference. Everything about uh, how committed I am to her. Um, kind of rises from the fact that she would stay with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, to me, to me, what's the the most important question that you can be asking when you're thinking about, you know, do I stay or do I go? Is a church good for me? Is it bad for for, for me? Is kind of to leave that all behind and to say, <laughs> here is this person who is sitting next to me. What is the life that is happening right here, right mm-hmm. now, between me and this person? It is that relationship that is absolutely paramount. Right. If, 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 if my wife had tried to heal me or convert me, if she had tried to say, well, you know, let's go read some Bruce R. McConkie books or something like that, or, you know, made an appointment with a bishop or, 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 you know, used any strategies to help bring me back in, into the fold, um, that sense of intimacy would would not have sparked. I would not have let her so deeply into the most frightening thoughts of my entire life because I would have known that she wasn't actually seeing me, that she was trying to make me be another person. But instead, mm-hmm. she saw me as I was then, and she was willing to make room for me. Right. And so, um, and that's I, moral courage, in my opinion. It that, was moral courage. It was yes. amazing. Yes, 
that I value Stephen and loving him more than the terror that I'm feeling right now. Right. <laughs> they coddle <laughs> my terror. <laughs> really. And to me, that 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 is sort of the definition of of being a, in an intimate relationship is being willing to go into the terrifying places together, especially yes. when the stakes are high. Yes. That's beautiful, Stephen. I, I appreciate that. Let me just throw in one uh, thing that came to me as as Jennifer was speaking, and and to the to the notion of how we relate in our own um, personal development and concepts, how we relate to the institutional church. A statement that Brother Joseph made that that I don't hear quoted anywhere really. Um, is when he said, uh, would that all of the Lord's people would be prophets. And he went on to say that one is qualified to be a prophet who has uh, a testimony of Jesus. And I think most of us certainly have a testimony of Jesus. That that, that is the rock on which we, we build our, our behavior and, and our, our outline, outline for how we want to live. But maybe that also gives us the the privilege of saying if i am something of a prophet in this church because of my vision not that i have any strange ideas that i belong up there on the stand instead of so and so but that i am privileged to have my own vision i am privileged to share my own vision and that I am coming to see the idea of marriage or whatever other idea we might be devoted to. I'm coming to see that in a way that is very inspiring to me and in a way that I think is a step forward from some of the things we have inherited that are sometimes bound into the sins of the fathers. So what if we gave real credence to the personal visions that we have and that we have expressed here on this podcast of seeing marriage as something a little bit different and perhaps a little bit more fulfilling and of a higher order of joy and intimacy than what we have inherited necessarily from the usual discourse of the institution. What if we had enough confidence in that to, to share that uh, in an appropriate way, but a way that shows our enthusiasm and that helps to move everything forward because mm -hmm. our, our, our general communal vision will receive these new rivulets from each one of us who, who somehow has enough courage to say, this is the vision that I have for the subject of marriage. This is how I intend to um, to try to utilize it in my own life, how I hope to show it to those who might be uh, be looking, and 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 how my vision can just um, fertilize some progress for the whole community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I fully agree with that, and I think you know that. Um, sort of to both Dan's question and something that Stephen said just in passing, he was saying, you know, back before my faith crisis, I was, we were good Mormons. Um, and I would say, Stephen, you're a better Mormon now than you were before your faith crisis. And so yeah. was your wife in that. Right. Yes. 
that, that's lovely. That redefinition is lovely. Yes, exactly. Because I, what I say to my kids is the way to be a good Mormon is not through conformity. It's by showing up with integrity and speaking what you honestly believe is right. That's our responsibility in our wards, in, in any group that you belong to. That's your responsibility in a family, in a marriage, is to be true to the best in yourself. And our theology supports that even though we suppress it. Uh, I mean, what I mean is we want to favor compliance and obedience and conformity as measures of goodness. Human systems do this very easily, but I think it's a blasphemy. I don't think it's the best in our faith. And I think we, and I think, again, it's what Christ was critical of. It's a kind of externality of goodness when the real integrity is lacking. And when we take integrity out of a group, we all suffer. And so, you know, we need to bring our, our best selves. I think, you know, I maybe I've said this on a Mormon Matters podcast before, but I remember being on my mission and being in a faith crisis on my mission, which is a hard place to be in one. And I um, had I went through a I had been in a faith crisis even before I came into my mission, honestly. Partly going on a mission was a, a way of making a sacrifice to to God for an answer. And it was coming towards the end of my mission and I went into a full-on crisis. <laughs> and I, you know, fasted for multiple days and and pled with God for an answer. And I knew on the fourth day that I, I got my answer. And the answer was, there are false traditions everywhere, Jennifer. And no one has all the answers and your responsibility is to discern between good and bad and to align yourself with what is good, between right and wrong, and to align yourself with what is right. And that terrified me at the time <laughs> because I knew that it would mean having to tolerate the invalidation of speaking more honestly to the people whose acceptance I wanted. That uh, So... I feel like I'm a little bit in the weeds here off our main topic, but, but basically that I think that that's really fundamental to intimacy because if you can't belong to the best in yourself, you don't have something to share. And it's part of being an intimate connection with our brothers and sisters in the church as well. I, I really like everything that, 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 that you guys have been saying about all this, but I I need to point out that, that there are some pretty significant road roadblocks to really making this work out. Um, one of the things I point out in my essay is that when whenever uh, my wife and I have found uh, ways to go into greater intimacy, um, our our uh, our ability to get like concrete things done has really failed, has really fallen mm -hmm. off. I, I, I talk about how we spent about two weeks going through a, a list of questions that I got from a from an, an article called "To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This," and and it was an absolutely alive time for our relationship, but but we didn't feed the kids as well as we should have. A lot of uh, <laughs> callings kind of fell by the wayside. I kind of fell behind on my work. The house got less clean. And if you look at this in a bigger context, um, if we have a church full of people who are alive to their marriages, who are putting in the time and attention that that can bring 
drama and joy into a marriage, there's going to be a lot of things that go undone. We're going to lose, you know, some of the the structure and the things that that always get done at church and all the callings that always finish up. We'll lose political power as a church. And that's one thing that scares the dickens out of us. We have this history of persecution, and the last thing that we want is to become one of those small persecuted churches again, which is why we put so much effort into making sure that, you know, we've got the laws going and we've got the PR thing going and we're constantly campaigning for this and for that, all so that we can keep our power. We invest in all of these things so that our church has power. And one of the reasons why we have power, one of the basic laws of of, of, of economics is that you have cheap labor. And that's what Mormons are to a great extent. They're the cheap labor <laughs> who are willing to let go of their marriages and of their of their exploration into their intimacy with God. And 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 that will Though they don't know that they're the consciously they don't of know course they don't. Yeah. yeah. They don't know they're making that choice, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really important to to a point out. Everybody feels like they're doing the right thing, but but Think about Jesus. Jesus got almost nothing done. He wandered around. <laughs> he talked to people. He was practically homeless. And do we really want a church full of Jesuses? Because that's like herding cats. <laughs> so, so what I'm what I'm saying is 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 that I am fully endorsing um, going into this this charged place. Where, where, where we see the person in front of us, where, where our marriage is indeed the first thing on our mind instead of our calling or our job or something else. But, but that will come with consequences, even but, if we know, don't intend them to come. Yes. If you just had, what did you say, two, two weeks of this intensity where, where almost nothing got done. <laughs> I mean, that's everybody can uh, can spare two weeks of that kind of intense and yeah. intimate education. But then, see, we're all used to multitasking, and we all have to do life in all of these ways. But what if there were an institutionalized, protected space every week that that couples could really, really count on to spend a couple of hours renewing that sort and maybe not just going to the movie but uh in intense delightful intimacy i was remembering something that when i was uh performing my play mother of the morning uh the the 16 women throughout history in search of god the mother there was this particular place when i played rebecca the, the Jewish woman who's waiting for her husband to come home so she can light the Sabbath candles, and we know he's not going to come home. But she, and I, I was, it was just so delicious to me when I got to say these, these words, and I'm just going to read this small little paragraph. Rebecca says, But on Shabbat we rejoice, and we light the candles. And after midnight, the Kabbalah says, that after midnight, a man and his wife must be coupled in the marriage bed because their coupling on Shabbat assists God and his Shekinah to couple and to be one as they should be one. And from their oneness comes the souls of humans 
And from their oneness, the world will be healed. So what if we were able to see the ongoing um, uh, ritual of intimacy between a man and a woman as something that is tremendously important to the work of God? Absolutely. And, and what if it was, in fact, put on the list as one of the activities that's appropriate for the Sabbath day? I mean, we keeping the Sabbath has all these lists of things we're supposed to do. You know, right. reading the scriptures, doing this, doing... What if it were really acknowledged that for a man and a wife on the Sabbath, which may be the only time, the only time during the week, that they might be able to find a little bit of uns, uh, of time that is not spoken for, that that somehow... That, that the kids would be given some interesting thing for them to do, and they would know that mom and dad now need to have some real nourishing time together, and that they are not to bother the, 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 the parents until they uh, come back out to be with, with the kids. What if everybody understood that? And whether that means sexual intimacy, which would be wonderful to have that to look forward to, or whether that would be deep conversation and just holding each other and rubbing each other's feet. What if there were some some institutionally protected time where husband and wife could simply be lovers? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful and wonderful idea. And I agree. I mean, I think, Stephen, you're making it maybe a little too uh, one or the I other. I was overstating yeah. my case. You're right. <laughs> but I, also I appreciate think you calling out on that. Sure. And then I think what, you're, what Carolyn's also saying is, you know, that two weeks, everyone can spare two weeks. And, and then you're a better couple. You have more to give to your children. Like the kindest thing you can do for your children is to have them know their parents have a loving, secure marriage. And the investment in creating that is it creates so much goodness in the collective. And so you know, it is worth our time. And again, it comes back to what's more important, this sort of creation of a structure or what the structure is there for in the first place. And I love Carolyn's ideas around, is there ways we could institutionalize structures that create this kind of intimacy and personal development that comes through intimacy? Yeah, we strengthen the family. You know, that's the big phrase, strengthen family. You can't strengthen the family on a weak marriage. Absolutely. If, if, in, if is much um, the energy in terms of words that are spoken over the pulpit yeah. and an actual um, strengthening of programs and time and whatever were, were given to the marriage and not just to the family, I think everyone would benefit. Yes. Yes. Yeah, actually, my, my, my wife and I frequently uh, sort of skip priesthood and relief society and take walks together. <laughs> I hope Great. my bishop is That's listening. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's because cool. the kids are Instead of feeling guilty, yeah, you're doing something positive, though. Yeah, neat. Hey, well, I just let me uh, moderator here. Um, 30 minutes left max. And so I want to make sure that we get to everything we really wanted to get to. Stephen, uh, you had a second angle that you took in your essay. Is there anything that, of that that you feel like you want to for sure bring up, or is it already kind of 
filtered out in different ways. And then I definitely want to get back to the partnership versus patriarchy kind of stuff. Um, but let's let's go to Stephen first and then make sure everybody else gets to say what they wanted to say for sure. And then let's maybe close with that partnership thing. Okay, yeah. Um, I think we basically covered my second angle, but there there was one other thing that started to come to me last night as I was considering all of this. And uh, when I was, again, in Alaska, Alaska was a very pivotal time for, for me, I, I stumbled across a book called The Different Drum by M. Scott Peck. Sure. And uh, it's, it's a book about community. It's a book about, it's a book about uh, how to become one with other pe- people. And when I read it, it uncovered a deep, deep hunger. And I realized this idea of community is what I want from life. And, and I've been reading it over and over and over again for years, for almost a decade now. It's a book that I would highly recommend to people who want to find sort of how to make intimacy happen. Because in a lot of ways, our culture teaches us that intimacy you know, strikes you like, like a bolt of lightning. You never know when it's going to come. And it's romantic to think about it that way, but I think it's wrong. Um, when we get together, uh, I started to, to notice as soon as I started paying attention <laughs> to the way my talks with my wife would, would, would go, that um, we would hang out for, for a long time, usually in what uh, Peck calls pseudo-community. It's where you're you're nice to each other, you're making room for each other, you're saying all the right things, and you're doing your best to not come into conflict. And this is where I think most of church time is as well. Everybody's in pseudo-community. They've all got their Mormon smiles on. They're all willing to, you know, say all the right things. And then, but the but the but the problem is we're we're all real people and we're different from each other. And when we're together long enough, that starts to become apparent. And I realized that during my talks with 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 Noelle, um, the times when things would actually start getting going, when I when we started actually interacting as a couple, as two people, as two souls, um, was when we started to come into a little bit of conflict, where we started to find the places where we didn't see eye to eye, where we didn't understand one another, and. Usually, when you come to that place, you like try to back off, right? You're like, oh, conflict, we shouldn't go into there. But Peck argues that conflict is precisely the place where we can start to become intimate. Because finally, a little bit of us is showing through. We're finally actually seeing a place where we could actually talk together. But the problem is, we have so little training. We have so little skill in being able to do what he calls fight gracefully. Yes. <laughs> Talking with each other about these conflicts without having to be right, without the other person needing to be wrong, with without having to heal or convert one another. And so one person says, oh, I'm so sad about this. And we say, well, all you have to do is this. And already you've, signed, you've, 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 you've stopped any possibility of being able to dive deeper into your, 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 your spouse's soul. Mm-hmm. And, so, um, and, 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 and so going deeply into this conflict is very scary because 
we don't know much about conflict or how to work with it. But but he gives us um, this idea that that what we really need to do is to empty ourselves of of the need to uh, to to convert the other person, to heal the other person, to give them advice, to make things all better. And we need to get rid of all the things inside of us that are kind of uh, pushing up against that and say, no, 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 you can't have that. You can't have that. That that can't be the way that you go. One example of this was um, my my young seven-year-old daughter is in dance, and she loves dance with all of her heart. She will dance until the cows come home, and then she'll <laughs> dance in the pasture with them. And uh, the problem is, as anyone who has put a daughter through dance knows, dance is expensive, like mortgage expensive. And it worried my wife. I'm not as finance conscious as, as she is. But it's true. The uh, the expenses kept mount, mounting up, and and it was a point of contention between us. And I really wanted to keep dance because I love to watch my daughter perform. She is fantastic, not just from my point of view, just to let you know. <laughs> but but she was worried about it because you know it costs like four hundred dollars to go to a competition, and there are like five or six competitions, and it was kind of weighing on her, and. And I needed to let go of my need to have my daughter in dance. And and it was scary. It was really scary. <laughs> and it's a tiny thing, you know, looking back on that. It's, it's a tiny thing, but it really meant a lot to me. And I had to let it go in order to be able to start seeing what she really thought. Because what I thought she thought... Was well was looming too too high in my mind. I couldn't see her. I could only see what I was thinking, and I had to let go of that in order to start seeing what she was actually thinking. And so this is kind of Peck's idea of you know you you kind of have to die to some things. Oh, Jennifer, you were saying something about yeah. that death to the ego type of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and 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 so and so what I'm what I'm trying to give a quick summary of is that um, this 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 time and attention that we give to the marriage relationship, there can be a pattern that can lead us into this magic place, which is intimacy, and and it's getting out of pseudo community, being willing to go into that chaos, into that conflict, and then being willing to let go of the things that are causing you to not be able to see each other. And once you're able to empty yourself out, and it's often very painful, and it's especially painful if you're not sure that you trust your spouse or your significant other to 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 uh, do the same. But if you're able to do that, I found that a lot of the times it brings us to that intimate space, and it's so nourishing, where you don't have to be right, where you don't have to have the answers, where you can just be with this this soul that suddenly comes alive and you say my gosh i thought i knew you before but but look at you i i I had no idea you had these things in you and and then when you see that person growing and, and and evolving before your eyes you 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 realize that you're doing the same thing that being in proximity and in connection with this person where you're not putting exterior uh, uh, expectations on each other, you you come alive and you grew and you grow in, in ways that 
that you never thought you would. You become a person you never thought you would become. And it, it really is fan, 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 fantastic. But every single time, it takes time and it takes attention and it takes being willing to go into the conflict and the chaos and emptying yourself so that you can see one another. I, I don't know, Jennifer. But, you, even, but you, even, to our puritanical, to even to our puritanical work ethic, isn't that productive, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> it just depends on what you're trying to build, but you're talking about building more loving, solid souls. That is the work of faith. That is the work of religion. That's precisely what we're trying to do here because you are creating in the ability to tolerate the presence of another person and their stupid ideas. I mean, I'm being kind of silly, but <laughs> you know, when you, the con, I fully agree with this idea that conflict is exactly our pressure points. It's, it's stepping away. That's often the weak move. Uh, the people that are conflict avoidant want to call themselves good when really they're cowards because they don't want to actually deal with who they are, not just who their spouse is, but who they are, what the conflict reveals about themselves and their own self-service or their ego or their, you know, desire to dominate or whatever it is. And it's in the conflict that you both show up. And it's not so much skill-based. I mean, I think you made a reference to skills, Stephen. I think it's more moral courage-based. I may not have any idea what to do in the face of what you're saying to me, just like your wife was, but I'm not going to make my fear trump right now. I'm going to let who you are show up and see if I can bring my best self to a response to it. And that pressures development right there. That's why I say in my courses a lot is that marriage is a divine institution. Heterosexual, I don't mean heterosexual, sorry, I don't mean that at all. I mean uh, monogamous marriage, whether heterosexual or homosexual, that that is the pressure point of our own development because if you can triangulate through the fantasy of another wife or through an affair or through talking to your kids or through the church but triangulating is a therapy word which is to say that you move out of that pressure and then you go and you buoy yourself up in your view through some other entity outside of the marriage that is the lower law that's what polygamy allows monogamy you know, committing yourself to another person pressures you to evolve because if you're going to actually not be just miserable with them, you have to develop. You have to face who you are. You have to face who they are and forge capacity within yourself. And so it hurts, but it's a meaningful hurt. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, I'll just say something I'm guessing is in your your mind, didn't come out of your mouth, maybe. There are some times when a retreat is a self-care move and an important oh, yeah. move and a stepping out of something. Absolutely. Yeah, as a, a way to gain strength, to gain perspective, et cetera. And it's, oh, absolutely. I mean, chronic, chronic not dealing with things. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Carolyn or Jennifer, did you have any things that you for sure wanted to get in that maybe wouldn't relate to partnership and and sort of a, a vision that we're going to be trying to at least begin to articulate. Uh, but I, I had a thought as I was listening, even just a, a moment ago, I, I remembered a, a poem that I wrote a long time ago. That's a long narrative poem called The Steward. And it's a it's about a man who who had the vision to cultivate his feels and did not have the vision to cultivate his wife. 
and she loved to play the violin and and he he didn't support that and so she she gradually gave that up and and something in her withered and withered and withered but he was committed as the as steward of the land that his father had given him to make that land better than it was when he received it and then he uses the he has the, the memory that when his wife was given to him and so it was up to him to decide whatever happened in the marriage and so he made decisions that that were to her detriment in terms of of not cultivating her and the things inside of her that were wanting to live and and I've had people tell me that well, when, I, when I first moved into the war uh, a man approached me and said I want you to know that when when I got engaged to to my wife I sat her down and I read to her your poem, The Steward. And, and she was a woman who sang a lot. She had had some operatic experience. And he said, I want, I'm reading this to you to tell you do not ever, ever give up your music. And I, I remember uh, a long time ago, Dallin Oaks called me on the phone one um, Saturday evening and said, Caroline, where can I find your poem, The Steward? I need to read it to my priesthood quorum tomorrow morning. But there is something in there, and, and in, in terms of what Stephen was saying, that if, if, each of, if each partner in a marriage were committed to being a proper steward over the other in a particular way that I am called to, to ensure that your growing happens, your growing is essential to what I am committed to doing here. If both of them had that vision, equally, then I think partnership would be the, the, the result and and a, a more beautiful relationship would be the result and consequently a more beautiful family and eventually then a more beautiful church. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Now, Carolyn, will, will you be able to make the, a link to that poem available to this audience as I, you know, put it up in the in the write up? Well, it's, uh, I will end the book that it appears in, Beginnings and Beyond. Okay. All right. Thanks. All righty. Um, Jennifer, anything on that? Now, she started just down the partnership path a little bit, but anything that you for sure wanted to say, and then we can kind of just wrap up in that general area. Um, I think that I've kind of said it. I, I think it's sort of been implicit throughout, but I do, I guess I might reiterate just how important I think marriage, monogamous marriage is um, for, for development because, you know, we all do want this experience of, of intimacy and pair bonding and in order to get it we have to become better people and I think, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a valuable thing and I would love for our church community for us to value it more as Carolyn and Stephen are both talking about. I think it's so important. So, I don't know if I have any okay. new ideas. Yeah. All right. Well, then, Carolyn, let me go back to you. Um, your was it your second to last chapter or the third to last chapter is where you really begin to talk about Rianne Eisler and this, uh, you know, center that. Well, the, well, you don't talk about so much of the center, but the idea of building a partnership future rather than one based on patriarchy. Are there any um, elements or streams from that that you would want to? amplify right now and maybe we can just take that uh, 
uh, and run with it for two. Well, perhaps just that we know that when when business partners come together, they they bring different things to the table, but they they have equal uh, say or equal ownership, perhaps in in what's happening there. And we don't know. I, I certainly don't know exactly how partnership will look in marriages in in general, because I think each marriage will will be different depending on the different gifts that each partner brings. But the, if true partnership is happening, each of those partners will simply have a very understood, comfortable feeling that I am not running second on this and the other one is clearly in charge or more important. Somehow or other, even though we do different things, and right now we see, you know, there are a number of marriages where the man has chosen to be the the more of the person who stays home, while the woman has a career that seems to be the one that can best support them, at least for this period of time. And um, people in their own relationships are are taking more opportunity to just plan things out the way that feels good to them. And yet it is still swimming upstream in terms of the patriarchal uh, concepts that we hear Sunday after Sunday. But I, I think the, the, the valuing of it would have to be, does each person feel equally valued? Is there a win-win? Are, are decisions made in terms of both parties feeling that they have been equally heard and that their needs are being equally met, knowing that that sometimes uh, one will have to say, you know, th- this time I want I want you to be able to have this particular advantage, or this time I think it, it's it's my turn that that this is so important to me that that I'm asking you to to back up a little bit on on how you've been looking at this. But how people are made to feel. If a woman is made to feel that she is an equal in value and in contributing to the decisions that are being made, then she won't feel like you're gold and I'm silver. And and, and similarly, I, I, I think sometimes uh, a man's personal needs are, are put away because he's the family workhorse and so however things play out in terms of who does what in a partnership probably would not matter nearly as much as do each feel that they are the, the gold standard and not uh, in, in any way inferior to the other in their position and in their, their being and that somehow in general a win-win is, is happening. And, and, and that I think is a, is a possibility, a very good Yes, here, here. That's it's not about both need to work or anything like that outside the home. It's really can we be a collaborative couple where we both get to matter, we both get to show up, that we will make room in this marriage for each of us, even if there's times and seasons for when we each are doing taking yeah. more from the marriage. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah, really- you never know how it's gonna how it's gonna pan out. 
the uh, last seven years of my marriage have actually been a lot like what uh, what Carolyn was just talking about. I, I was the main caretaker of of, of, of our baby. I, I was I was the work at home dad, and and uh, Noel <laughs> is a very successful uh, business manager, and it really surprised me that this turn of events happened. I never thought that I would be the main caretaker of our family. And it was really, uh, really, uh, oh man, I just lost my word. It's been really fulfilling. You never know. Uh, the things that come out and, and, and amaze you, places you thought you'd never go, even especially if it's outside the role that, that, that uh, you thought that you were going to do, sometimes it can be the most amazing experience of your life. And I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't have been open to that. Nice. Now, one quick last thing on patriarchal partnership. It sounds to you like Carol Ann, as partnership becomes the the dream, as it becomes the reality, patriarchy just sort of fades away. It's not like you're saying you have to go from one to the other. It's almost like whatever gifts patriarchy gives, we just won't even they'll they'll pale in such comparison to the rest is that sort of it or i mean what what's the prong that you think we should work on is should it be the forward-looking partnership thing versus trashing trashing patriarchy or i'm, I'm screwing up here because uh, i'm trying to trying to hurry us to close because i know of schedules here but the forward versus the critique um what would you say there certainly i, I think just assume that that partnership is 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 the goal, and we're going to implement it at every possible opportunity. And if indeed partnership is a superior configuration, then it will automatically prove itself. That's right. That's and just right. and then just take up the space that patriarchy has the, the fences that patriarchy has been limiting us by right. and. Um, and then that will that will hopefully spill over into d- other parts of society and and into the church. But in the meantime, ah, it would be so great if church structure helped out a little right. bit. Right. Right. So I'm trying to come up in my brain. I'm trying to come up in yeah. my brain. What are the advantages of patriarchy? And there aren't any. Yeah, that's what I'm just trying to, <laughs> to to say. Who would defend it when they really think about it? Other than just this is the way it's been, and uh, you know I've had a fulfilling life within it. Therefore, it must be good structure, and that's the only way that people um, I think could actually defend patriarchy. Uh, it creates I- pseudo intimacy that Stephen was talking about. It creates pseudo freedom from conflict because you have one that trumps and one that submits. Nice. But it's a stunted it's a stunted model. It doesn't really forge the movement we need to make as people. Well, it's a fast way to economic growth because then everybody knows what they have to do. Everybody's roles are already panned out, and then you don't have to talk about who's doing what. Right. I think that's the main thing that people think is going for it. We just made it into a religion instead of an economic model. <laughs> Very interesting. interesting. What a good conversation, you guys. Thank you so much. I hope you've all enjoyed it. It sounds like you have, and uh, everyone was just like on top of their game, so thank you so much. Dan, thank you for doing this. I, I certainly enjoyed it, and, and it should give us, give us all, in, in whatever relationships we have, um, 
really great things to think about. Thank you. You bet. And Carolyn, once more, your book's available through Amazon. I'll certainly link to it at Mormon Matters. Anybody who wants to get this, get it. Uh, if they get a book group together, give Carolyn a call and see if she can, um, you know, somehow support your efforts or something like that. I know she's just willing to, to you know, do great things with people that really want to have a focused conversation on these issues. So do you want to say anything more about that particular thing, Carolyn, what you're open to or how they could contact you or something? Oh, and I would be thrilled to hear of, of book groups uh, getting together to, to discuss the book. As, as has already happened, and and I, I did join uh, in on one for a bit on, on Skype, so I would be uh, thrilled to participate in every way, every way that I can, because I have a tremendously strong personal commitment to moving out of patriarchy into partnership, and certainly moving away from polygamy, which is the thing, I, th- I think it is, the thing that has to happen in order for for Mormon women and men to move onto more equal ground. Thank you. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on again. It's been sure. wonderful. We're going to, I cannot, uh, you will be at the top of the Rolodex again. Not Great. that it was ever anything <laughs> conscious. It was either subjects we didn't do or something else, but sure. uh, you're just fantastic. And uh, I appreciate you so much. Is there anything you Thank want you. to point people towards? Um, like how to, how to sign up for your workshops or are you still taking uh, clients? Or sure. Sure. All that sure. Work? Both. Yes. If you want, you can link, we could link to my courses that are available if people want to take a look at them. But uh, I do just want to say that I, I really appreciate you, Carolyn, as I was starting to read your book yesterday, feverishly getting ready. I just was saying the, the, the LDS community is so fortunate to have you and your wisdom and your maternal strength. And I don't know why in my childhood growing up, I heard your name often. I don't know if it was your poetry that my parents appreciated. They, I think my father lived in the basement of your parents, of your, of your dad's house or something in Provo when he was going to BYU. Anyway, I knew a lot about you growing up, and you were an icon in my head that was very important for me, and so I really do respect you and your work. I, I thank you for that, Jennifer. Thank you. Stephen, you're my brilliant friend. I'm so glad you're heading Sunstone after uh, my departure. I've been away now eight years. That was how long I was there, so it's it's, <laughs> it's kind of weird to have uh, have that so far in the rearview mirror, but thank you for, for keeping the discussions going and being so uh, insightful and committed to this great uh, community. It was my pleasure. Now I am the second longest-serving editor of Sunstone. Oh, I really? yes, I guess you usurped me and Albert. <laughs> Albert, no one will beat Albert, or we hope not. <laughs> Maybe you do want to. Like 15 years was Albert, I think. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you. And um, I know this is a recent issue. Will people need to buy uh, that issue of the magazine in order to read your piece, or will there be some? Yeah, they'll that have to buy to? it as a single I- issue. If they just go to, to the magazine tab on sunstone.org, they'll, they'll be able to find it just fine. And then, hey, you could always subscribe because we just keep on being interesting over at Sunstone. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sounds good. Appreciate you all again. And uh, listeners, thank you so much for all that you do. Thanks for the conversations that you generate at mormonmatters.org as well as on Facebook and other things. Um, share your thoughts, share your ideas, share your recommendations for good articles or whatever that we should we should all take a look at. Give Stephen the idea for movies and uh, books that are about marriages. The Painted, <laughs> so, the painted Veil. That's a Somerset Mon one. That's a marriage. Oh. 
Cool. Yeah, cool. it's an excellent film. Yeah. Okay, anyway. keep, thro- keep oh. throwing those out there. Uh, <laughs> while you're at Mormon Matters, if you will click on that donate button. I would love it. It's just so, uh, so helpful for me to be able to organize my life in a way that we can, we can really keep these coming at a good pace and, uh, and, you know, being in your ears and hopefully in your hearts and some good things to think about. And so, uh, thank you for all you do financially to support us. And at this time, I'll again, thank this wonderful panel and wish you all a good day. Take care. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Matters Podcast. To discuss this podcast with others, please check us out at mormonmatters.org. Mormon Matters contains no ads, relying for its funding solely upon the support of people like you, its listeners. To keep it moving forward, please consider a monthly subscription or make a tax-deductible donation today at mormonmatters.org. Music for this podcast was brought to you by Shalan Hunt Clayson. You can hear more of her music by visiting her Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Chelan's Music, C-H-E-L-A-N-S-M-U-S-I-C. The Mormon Matters logo was generously provided by studiocase.com. Thank you for listening. Searching my soul.